Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The financial services industry is known for century-old institutions with rules and policies that are often outdated, yet are preserved by regulations. Whether we're talking about banking, insurance, or investment services, transformation is often slow, and outside competition is usually met with significant resistance. This is why it's so exciting to do a profound and disruptor organization that has found success despite these hurdles. Lemonade is such a company, forming an insurance firm that aligns the interests of the carrier with those of the consumer in a way that is economically viable. They have found success using cutting edge technology, a completely different business model, and a passion for doing good. Today, we have Lemonade CEO and co-founder, Daniel Schreiber, in an exclusive interview to find out how artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, and a focus on transparency and purpose have been used to disrupt the century-old insurance industry. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Over the past several years, I have uh, followed Lemonade because of your firm's business model. It's unorthodox marketing style, it's commitment to using data and AI to deliver a better digital solution, and because of your commitment to both transparency, which is unusual in financial services, and in delighting the consumer. While I cover the retail banking industry, I found your, your company's journey quite intriguing. Can you tell our audience that may not be familiar with Lemonade a, a bit about your company and what makes it different from a traditional insurance firm? Good to be with you. Lemonade is a new kind of insurance company. So we sell renters insurance, homeowners insurance. We recently announced that we'll be launching pet insurance and we'll go into other products in the fullness of time. But we really built it from the ground up, built the entire company from scratch using a digital substrate. So we're replacing brokers with bots and we're trying to deliver on a promise of zero paperwork and instant everything. So when you buy insurance, you're chatting through the app or through the website with a bot called Maya. It takes about 90 seconds on average to get covered. So if you're standing in Starbucks and you've ordered your latte and you're waiting for them to make it, you could be insured before the coffee is made. That's the kind of level of ease and convenience that it delivers. And it becomes even more dramatic when you talk about paying claims, which is also done instantaneously and algorithmically and through a bot. And we pay about a third of our claims within a matter of seconds of you hitting submit. But part of that is beyond technology. So certainly building all the technology stack from scratch was a big part of it. But we're a certified B Corp, a public benefit corporation, which doesn't mean that we're not for profit. We certainly are. But it means that we're not just for profit. And one of the challenges that I think insurance faces is a deep distrust between the insurer and their customers. And we were really intrigued, my co-founder Shai Winninger and I, when we started the company about why people hate insurance so much, why they're so willing to defraud insurance, why the loyalty to the brand is so low. And we rebuilt some of the business model elements of insurance to reduce conflicts of interest, to introduce social impact, to be able to create a lovable, a trusting, and a trustworthy brand. So perhaps we can go into that in a minute, but as much as building it on artificial intelligence, we also look to build it on all of the social sciences, behavioral economics um, as well. So that's the second element of what Lemonade is all about. The upshot is that you get insured in no time, you get paid in no time, and you give back leftover monies 
to a cause that you care about. So it's interesting. You talk about replacing brokers with bots, but it's not like you get rid of the human aspect of the business because just going digital doesn't necessarily make a consumer feel like they should trust the organization or they should do something with the organization or do business with the organization. And the reality is, you know, with insurance, you don't realize the speed of payout until you have a claim. So a lot of times you're buying on the the assumption that things are going to work okay. But how do you bridge that gap between digital and human? So there's a lot in that question. I'll try and unpack it a little. You're right that people don't trust insurance companies just because of their say-so. You know, one of the striking things is you go to any modern metropolis and you'll see that the skyline is dotted with skyscrapers of insurance companies. You know, the MetLife building that dominates New York City, and you go to London and you've got the Swiss rebuilding, and Chicago's got its building, and San Francisco has an iconic building there that's an insurance company. And there seems to have been this conventional thinking that insurance companies roll into town, they build a tourist building, and with that, they project their financial prowess and kind of cow you into admitting that they're very rich, and therefore you don't have to worry, and therefore you can trust me. And Lemonade had to contend with the fact that we don't have skyscrapers, and how do you project trustworthiness in a different way? And actually, we we think that today's consumer isn't impressed by skyscrapers. If anything, I think it engenders the opposite, distrust. And really, you're worried about your insurance company not because you think they don't have the wherewithal to make the payment. You think they don't have the will to make the payment. You think that their business model means that they could enrich themselves by not paying you, and therefore you're fighting over the same coin. You're in conflict with your insurance company, and that is the common perception of insurance today. So we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, how do you build an insurance company that doesn't project that conflict of interest? And what we do at Lemonade is we take a flat fee. So you pay us your premiums. Every dollar premium you pay us, we tell you we're going to take 25% of that as a flat fee. Now, we don't know how many claims are going to come this year, so maybe that's too much, maybe that's not enough. How can you build an insurance company that way? So we did some really neat, innovative financial modeling, and we used two tools in order to stabilize that 25%, if you like. On the one hand, we buy something called reinsurance, which is we pay other larger insurance companies some premium every year to take any excess claims that might come in. So that's how we make sure we don't have less than 25%. And then we introduced a charitable giving program. We call it the Give Bag, where we give any money that's left over to a charity and we tell our customers, you choose. Now, that changes a lot of things. One, it means that we don't have an incentive to deny or delay a claim. We've got a fixed 25%. Whether we pay your claim or don't pay your claim, we're going to make the same amount of money this year, which means that our incentives flip suddenly from being motivated to give you a hard time, we get motivated to pay you super fast, to lower our expenses, and to delight you as a consumer so you'll tell your friends and you'll stay with us forever. And your incentives flip as well. Today, when you're making a claim from an insurance company, it's you against the man. You feel like you're dealing with a nameless, faceless behemoth with whom you have a conflicted relationship. And that engenders in you, who are usually a law-abiding citizen, suddenly you're tempted to embellish your claim And to rationalize it as, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's an uneven playing field. These guys are going to screw me over if I don't stand up for myself. So I'm going to allow myself to misbehave a bit. But when you realize that, and we we remind you of this in Lemonade, if you embellish your claim with Lemonade, you're not hurting Lemonade. 
you're hurting the charity that you designated as your give back cause, your local church, your kids' PTA, the animal welfare organization that you've designated. And that flips something in your mind because basically most people want to be good people. And if they realize that they're dealing not with this nameless, faceless behemoth, but with a cause that they care about, it moderates their behavior. And the upshot is instead of it being a vicious cycle of distrust that spirals onwards and downwards to the way insurance is today, you start creating a virtuous cycle of trust where people start loving and trusting their insurance company and vice versa. So you're not originally from the insurance industry. In fact, you actually have a legal education and a marketing background in the tech industry. How has that helped you or made it more difficult as far as directing Lemonade? You're absolutely right. Both myself and and my partner, Shai, have 20 years experience in entrepreneurship and coming into Lemonade, zero experience in insurance. And we were trying to think, this is five years ago now, trying to think about new areas of the economy that we think were left relatively untouched, relatively neglected by all the transformation of the digital era. And when we chanced upon insurance, we stopped. We encountered this space that was huge. It's like 11% of GDP. It's a 100% household penetration rate. It's still unchanged. So the Fortune 100 are comprised 12%, 12 of them are insurance companies, and their average age is 125. So you're dealing with an industry that is still dominated by players who were founded during the Industrial Revolution. So it's large, it's unchanged, and it's unloved. And that kind of trifecta is you know, the kind of thing that makes all the lights go off on entrepreneurs. We said, we've got to do something in this space. And what we did not do, which you might expect someone to do, is to say, hey, we don't know anything about insurance. Let's go study insurance. Let's go Google it. Let's, let's open the Wikipedia entry. Let's start somewhere. <laughs> and what we decided to do was something different. We said, no, one second. If we really want to engage in first principles thinking, if we want to try and reinvent the way things are done, then it's best that we not know how they are done. It's the knowledge curse. Once you know, it's hard to unknow. Let's milk our ignorance for all it's worth in order to try and rethink things from scratch. So we took an, a shared space with a whiteboard and we spent a couple of months just thinking through saying, look, we've got 20 years of entrepreneurship in consumer-oriented innovation. We have high school probability theory. How hard can this stuff be? Let's think through what kind of insurance company we would like to interact with as consumers. Why do we not trust our insurance company? Why do we hate the paperwork and the faxes and the bureaucracy and the process? And we built something kind of from scratch. We sketched it out on that board and Lemonade today bears more than a passing resemblance to what we sketched out those five years ago on the board. And only once we did that, do we then go to the Wikipedia and get the regulatory advice that we needed and speak to serious people from within the insurance space. So in answer to your question, it's been hugely valuable to us to be able to cross-pollinate from the worlds that we knew, technology, disruption, consumer-centric innovation, marketing, branding, storytelling, into worlds that were entirely new from us, but that we wanted to help transform, in this case, insurance. So you really started from the customer experience perspective and said, what is wrong, or, or trying to find an industry that 
there were some things that were drastically wrong, just in the, the consumer perception. It may not be the reality. It's not saying that any of the companies that were doing business were bad, but the consumer's perception was such that they were not out for their benefit. In much the same way that a person's bank, a person's investment broker, you know, we, we talk about those magic moments. That, you know, I, geez, I was getting a lot of calls from my broker pre-COVID about where I should take my 401k and my retirement funds. But geez, I, I really haven't heard a thing from my broker since the market started crashing. The same thing with my financial institution. You realize the way that they even communicate to you, they, the way they try to drive you toward digital banking. You just get the perception that, geez, is it really for my benefit or is it for your benefit? So do you think financial services in general is ripe for disruption and transformation, not only due to the customer experience component, but also due to the power of data, AI, and machine learning, especially in the post-COVID world? Again, a lot to unpack there. Let me take the last piece first. I think we underestimate the power of data. So it is discussed a lot, but I don't think it's taken all that seriously. And in fairness to the legacy players, it is very difficult to retrofit a business with these kinds of insight. So the idea that data can transform businesses, or I'll even zoom out a little bit more, I think that data can transform or do away with expertise. And it starts with areas that you think, oh, it's all about expertise. So you know, famously, the Moneyball story where the Oakland days used data in order to spot talent. And before that, you thought they needed scouts to watch somebody hold a bat and to listen to how it cracks when it hits the ball and all of that. And they showed that actually regression analysis will be able to sidestep the human bias that plagues all of us and just give you a clean read on where you should spend your money to get talent. And people have applied that in so many different disciplines. You know, people swish and spit for the last thousands of years to determine if a grape is gonna make a good wine. And along came somebody and showed that a regression analysis of rainfall and temperature will better predict whether a particular grape is going to turn into a good wine than the whole swishing and spitting thing that experts have, have done for ages. And those are areas that you'd never think are data intensive, then carried into financial services and insurance, which are all about statistics and data. And you realize just how deeply transformative they can be. You know, insurance has been around for a very long time, but the insurance industry of today really took hold in the 1600s, and not by chance. There were insurance companies before that, but Lloyd's of London dates back to the 1600s. Benjamin Franklin's insurance company was started shortly thereafter and still is around today. And what was happening around that time was the invention of statistics as a modern discipline. It was the, the scientific revolution, and Bernoulli came up with the law of large numbers, and a bunch of other basic building blocks of probability theory were developed during the 1600s. And really, for the last 300 years, statistics and data and insurance have co-evolved. If 300 years ago I said to you, hey, who are the bastions of the world's data and who is home to its best statisticians? If I asked you that question in the year 1800, you'd have said insurance companies. And if I asked you that question again in the year 1900, you'd say insurance companies. And I put it to you that if I asked you that question in the year 2000, you'd probably hesitate for a second and then say insurance companies. And today, 20 years later, if I asked you that question, insurance companies wouldn't cross your mind. You'd say Google, you'd say Facebook, you'd say Twitter, you'd say Uber, you'd say a bunch of names out of Silicon Valley and none out of Connecticut. 
And that really is the core threat of the insurance industry is that it has lost supremacy over the basic building blocks of insurance, which is data and statistics. And it's done that because it's still rooted in a business model that is very human-centric, is very labor-centric rather than data-centric. The companies were not built on a digital substrate. And yes, they've got 150 years of doing stuff this way, but when they were formed and the business models took shape and the broker business model caught on, was a different era. And you just wouldn't build a company that way today if data centricity was the pillar upon which you wanted to build it, which is why we feel at Lemonade blessed. And in fact, it was our choice to build everything from scratch rather than just to create a facade a technological veneer around existing insurance companies. There's really a limit to how much you can transform when you take a hundred-year-old edifice and you put a pretty website in front of it. You really have to build the whole thing from scratch, which is why we developed Lemonade the way we did. It was interesting, too, because, again, the use of data in insurance, in brokerage, and in banking has always been about the back office operations. I think the thing that continually comes out of what you're saying is, yes, you're using data for the, the statistical models and for loss ratios and all that, but really it's all about making so that data, that the consumer sees the benefit of that, that it becomes front and center, that doing digital is a good customer experience and it makes the model look good overall. And then you get down to, okay, so... How would you change an existing organization? And in banking or in insurance, anyplace else, what gets in the way is not just the history of the company, but the legacy leadership of doing business the same way as we've always done it. And, you know, I, I kid about the fact that banking and insurance company uh, rotation programs for brand new hires is built around going around the organization to see how the business is done, which kind of undermines the whole concept of bringing new employees in because you're taking away their spirit and their ability to move forward. But do you think culture overall is the biggest hindrance to moving an organization from what I'll call the legacy process to more of a digital process? Because you're not even going to open that door, are you? No, I think you're right. And again, this is the, the dilemma that we had when you start a company. Many people said to us, look, you guys are techies you don't understand insurance, you should partner with a legacy insurance company and you can do the tech, they can do the insurance. And we rejected that notion. We said, no, these things have to be built from the ground up. They have to be the core, the culture, the kind of people that you bring on board, the internal processes, everything has to be built from scratch. I do not envy the insurance executives who have taken over these legacy players. I've met many of them, very impressive people. They understand, they've read the right books, they look over their shoulders, they understand the threats that face them. And they're managing these huge corporations with tens of thousands of employees, tens, sometimes over $100 billion of business. And how do you keep that going while reinventing and cannibalizing your very business? It's near on impossible. It's the classic innovator's dilemma. Books have been written about this and it's seldom done. But it goes deeper than just understanding the strategy, you know, and I think this is what you're touching on. The business model is wrong. What are you going to do? Fire 40,000 brokers and give up all the business that was built up over 100 years? The executive team is wrong. These are people who've been groomed for 30 years for legacy preservation, when what is really needed is business transformation. And they just weren't groomed for that. So the top is wrong. Oftentimes, the shareholders are wrong. You've got a class of shareholders at these companies 
who just want the 5% dividend year in, year out with low volatility, they don't want you placing big bets on technology and transformation. So that means that your board of directors is wrong. Every element of the business is wrong. So you're right, you're talking about the new people coming in. Do you really think that insurance companies are effectively competing with Google for the best machine learning talent and the best growth hacking talent? No way. They're not attractive to that class of people. The few people that slip in, they'll get it squeezed out of them pretty quickly. And it goes all the way up. So I think the difficulties are structural. They are inevitable. And it's very hard to transform such a business. I've had more than one CEO of a Fortune 50 insurance company say to me, I like your chances more than I like my own. Right. Well, it's interesting because you look at it and you go, okay, we can just do the numbers. The the number of customers that you serve as a ratio against the number of employees you have is a pretty nice ratio. I saw that in China with the, the digital companies that we, financial services companies saw there, that you look at the number of customers they serve versus the employees they have. But that's got to start from the beginning because what you have is, you know, if you're at Chase and you're in charge of the brand system, the last thing you want is a digital banking ecosystem because that means I lose my job and all my people I've gone through the system with will lose their jobs. When you look at even the work from home scenario, where now we realize, oh, you may not need 50 or 60 story buildings to manage a business. Even the thought of working from home is a complete disruption of the service, as is the consumer side of working in a digital way. So when you look at the digital aspect, has this, has the whole movement to digital from the consumer perspective possibly changed the traditional demographics of who will maybe use financial services that are digital if for no reason then we hit stop about a month and a half, two months ago, and we all got a heavy dose of going digital? Do you think this may change the industry overall from the perspective of maybe, if nothing else, consumers' perception of, geez, do I really need the physical structure? Do I really need the human? Yeah, I think that's a powerful insight. Perhaps what we've seen with COVID is an acceleration of processes that were already underway, or something of a time machine allowing us to see at least aspects of what the future are going to look like. So yeah, my 96-year-old grandmother is Zooming and WhatsApping and Skyping all day long. Um, So Necessity is the mother of innovation, and absolutely people are doing that. I have to tell you that I think that at least as far as we're concerned, we've seen this, though, play out even before COVID accelerated these things. So about a year ago, maybe longer, um, State Farm ran a series of commercials mocking new companies for their bots. It was pretty clear who they're taking a shot at. They had a nice (laughs) actor with a T-shirt, a pink T-shirt and everything else, and they were... They had this kind of TV commercial that was showing that only humans can be empathic and, and bots cannot, and therefore you need your State Farm agent. I think people will want, some people will want agents, and that's fine, and I'm sure State Farm do a great job for their customers. I, I haven't got a bad word to say about them. But I think the thesis that says that the future is all about humans being in personal contact and empathic was never true and now has this added urgency of, well, I might not want that hug from my broker right now. What I need is good service. And we've seen already, even before COVID, we've seen by so many measures how consumers who do use digital interfaces put paid to this idea that humans can always do a better job than a bot. Humans are slow. Humans aren't available all the time. Humans are forgetful. 
And there are things that bots can already do today, and that list of things is growing and growing, that they can do cheaper, better, faster, and without less empathy than humans, at least not from the experience point of view. If you go onto our app and you're chatting to AI Jim, and AI Jim's asking you a bunch of questions patiently, never irritated because he's a bot, but he asks you, oh, please tell me what happened, and you press the camera button and you look into the app and you just talk and say what happened instead of filling out silly forms and faxing them. Hey, I was in the coffee shop, I turned around, my laptop was gone, da-da-da. And then he asks you, do you have a receipt? And you say yes. And he says, well, just press the button, take a photo of it, and you do that. He says, do you have a police report? He says yes or no, or just enter the police report number. You know, the basic questions in order to get the details of the claim. And then you press I'm done. And three seconds later, he says, your, pay, your claim has been approved, the money is in your bank account. Are you begrudging the system for not being more empathic? <laughs> I don't think so. You're feeling thrilled that the level of service was what you needed in your hour of need. You just went through a traumatic event and you want your insurance company to damn well respond fast and help you undo the damage that you've just suffered. So I think a lot of younger consumers have already learned this. They've already realized that you're able through technology, which is thoughtfully designed, empathically designed. It's able to replicate empathy in a more reliable, durable, instantaneous way. And I have little doubt that the COVID experience of all of us is showing us that so many other aspects that we thought have to be in person can now be mediated through technology. Well, it's interesting because you benefit greatly from word of mouth. It works really well when your business started, if I'm not mistaken, in New York City and renters and a place where... uh, you can get a whole lot of uh, business from just one big apartment building in New York if uh, there's a good experience. But I think, you know, overall, there are many believe that financial services, especially now, need to be more focused on sustainability and community good. But we haven't really defined that, especially as we crawl out of the impact of COVID-19. I think we've seen where financial institutions have failed in general, basically, number one, inability to, to do things fast the inability to possibly take the consumer's perspective unless forced to do so. But can you discuss how Lemonade has made not just the giving back process, but overall the customer focus being a powerful economic strategy for your business, how it has helped your business? Absolutely. Insurance, as you said at the top of the hour, is not good at being um, customer-centric. Oftentimes, it's policy-centric. You call up your insurance company and say, hey, it's Jim. And they say, sorry, can you give me your policy number? They don't know who Jim is. They only know what a series of numbers are. Um, And we see that time and again where insurance companies put the policy at the center or the regulator at the center or the broker at the center, but too often not the customer at the center. And that creates a lot of low-hanging fruit for a company to come along and say, we're going to be customer-centric. We're going to be asking ourselves at every point, How would the consumer like to get this done and bend the other things to meet that rather than bending the customer experience to fit in line with the broker or the distribution model or or what have you? But I think you're touching on something that runs deeper than that. I like to think about uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow did these series of experiments where he showed that, yeah, if you don't have a house, if you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't have basic food and necessities, then that's all you're fixated on. But that once you have those bare necessities, you start thinking about other things. You start thinking about community and esteem and self-actualization. And ultimately, how can I transcend myself? And those are the hierarchies that you kind of climb up through as you climb the world of abundance. And if you ask yourself today, 
we, and particularly the, the newer generation, but the, the whole world, is seeing abundance that prior generations would have just dreamed about. They would have thought that we're living in utopia. And if brands are still only thinking narrowly about the basic financial transaction and not thinking about the other things that consumers need on that hierarchy of needs, they're missing important elements of what a relationship means today and what a relationship should mean between a brand and its consumer. So at Lemonade, everybody by definition has a roof over their head. We sell homeowners insurance, condo insurance, renters insurance. So we definitely want to take care of that. And if your house burns to the ground, we're your guy, we'll, we'll take care of that. But in the meantime, we want to make sure that we're not only taking care of that and that our conversation is values laden and has other dimensionality to it, which our competitors don't seem to think is all that important. So it starts off with our corporate structure. We establish ourselves as a public benefit corporation, which is a new kind of legal structure which says we're about profit, but we also commit to you to take into account other things. And then we went and got ourselves audited by the B Corp, which checks that indeed you're giving back and other aspects of your business cater to more than just the bottom line. You kind of got a double bottom line. And then we started taking stands on some things that were somewhat controversial, but that we felt it was appropriate. So after the October 27 Las Vegas massacre, we took a stand on guns. Insurance companies, your homeowner's insurance policy insures weapons. And the liability component there ensures you if you get sued for misusing your weapon. And we said, wow, we've actually got a responsibility here. We are protecting guns and we're protecting the use of guns. We should have a stance on what, how those should be used responsibly. And we publicized that, you know, when it comes to the Second Amendment, we're not going to take the fifth. We're going to say, yes, we insure guns, but we're not going to insure assault rifles. We're not going to insure guns above $2,500. And we're only going to cover them from a liability perspective if they're securely stored and responsibly used. So we put some contours around what we said was something that we wanted to be involved in insuring. We were the first, and I think still the only insurance company, to say that we're not going to invest in heavily polluting industries and coal. The insurance sector has about half a trillion dollars invested in massively polluting industries. Now, it's kind of shocking if you think about it. I take your health insurance premiums and I invest it in the thing that's screwing up your health. I take your home insurance policies and I invest it in the very things that are causing the wildfires, the wild storms, or the extreme weather scenarios that I'm insuring you against. I take your life insurance premiums and I invest it in the very things that might be killing you. So we, we said again, as an insurance company, we can't stand by the sidelines and just say, that's cool. We're going to take a stand on those things. So we've done that a few times. And we think that the totality of giving back, taking a stand, trying to also do social good is frankly, enlightened self-interest. This isn't about sacrificing the interests of our shareholders. This is about maximizing the interests of our shareholders. In today's world, brands that don't care about values won't be able to maximize value either. That at least is the ethos that we try to live by. Well, it's interesting because you've always touted in always how transparent your company is, not just transparent in how you make money and disperse money, but in what you invest in, how you disperse. You also have a different position than most insurance companies with regard to your social media. You're heavily branded. You're a little bit different than the rest. Heck, your color itself is different than uh, than most businesses. But I think overall, 
you also have social listening capabilities where you do keep track of what consumers want and what they need. And and can you explain a little bit about how the social listening and, and how movement, when you maybe didn't get it right, how you handled that in the past? Sure. So we do try to be both you know, part of the conversation. We're vocal, we express opinions, we tweet, we post on you know, other social channels. And frankly, most of our listening is done by humans. We literally listen. We check off Twitter feeds and we'll respond to customers who post there. And that part isn't automated. That part is done by us, by myself, by other members of the team who really try to listen. People write to me on LinkedIn, people tweet at me, people do that to other members of the team. We try to give our customers any avenue to approach us that they feel most comfortable so they can use our app, they can email us, they can call us, and yeah, they can use social media as well. So we do things on social media that I think other brands might feel uncomfortable doing. Our tone of voice is authentic and different. As you said, our color scheme, our look and feel, the kind of stuff that we tweet about, the kind of stuff that we would share. And we absolutely get things wrong and we try to acknowledge it both internally amongst our team members. Hey, I screwed up. I should have done this differently. And in our blog posts and and other places, we've blogged about mistakes that I made that cost our business $10 million because I experimented with something and just got it totally wrong and screwed up an entire quarter. And that's on me. And I wasn't malicious. I didn't do anything, you know, that wasn't thoughtful, but it was wrong. <laughs> Just own it and, and move on. And I tried to do that with my board. I tried to do that with other other places as well. And we've done that with branding. We, we started off the company talking about peer-to-peer insurance. We thought that was a cool way to describe what we're doing. It didn't work. Uh, we got attacked from both sides. Some people said it's not true peer-to-peer insurance. And other people said all insurance is peer-to-peer. And we realized that we were getting sidetracked in a debate that really was kind of meaningless and unimportant. We said, okay, okay, time out. We're not going to use peer-to-peer insurance. So we are experimentalists. And so long as you don't mind making mistakes and owning them, then why not try stuff, see what works, and, and double down on that? So that's really the ethos that we try to live by. So... Finally, I was in China at the beginning of this year and had the opportunity to visit a company named Pingan, one of the largest insurance conglomerates in the world. Their focus was entirely on using data and advanced analytics to provide insurance at the lowest possible cost. They also had expanded beyond insurance to provide a broader array of financial services using the data that they had from the insurance industry to provide banking services, to provide investment services, and even to use data to help other companies do what they do better, and, and they, they're a under underpinning of some of the smart city dynamics. Without thinking about the smart city, but looking at the broader range of financial services, is this possibly a model that could be followed by Lemonade at some point in the future, expanding? Maybe you've already expanded to different types of insurance from what your original um, organization, but could you see possibly getting into other financial services in the future? Never say never. And there are insurance companies that do that. USAA offers financial services that go beyond insurance, for example. So Ping'an is an incredible company, but you don't need to go all the way to China to see companies that do elements of that. We do have an expansive view of the world. So we started three and a half years ago in New York. We're now licensed in states that comprise about 90% of the, the US. We're live in most of those. And rather unusually, we've also launched in Europe. Insurance is one of those things that stops at the water's edge. All the big brands in the US, State Farm and Allstate and Farmers and all the companies with the word state and farm in their name, 
they all stop stateside. And then in Europe, you've got Allianz and Generali and AXA and all these companies that are unfamiliar here in the US. So the idea that we, less than three years in market, would already expand and launch in Germany in just a couple of weeks ago, we launched it in Holland and we're going to be launching in other countries, I think gives you an indication of the scope of our appetite and, and what we would like to be when we're all grown up kind of thing. And the same is true with product. So renters, condos, homeowners, pet, and we'll be announcing other insurance products you know, in the fullness of time as well. Having said that, I don't feel any great urgency to move outside of the world of insurance. The kinds of lines of insurance that we are in are about a $5 trillion market worldwide. The largest insurance companies in our space do a hundred and something billion dollars a year. So there are Fortune 50 companies, but they only have three or 4% market share. It's an absolutely crazy thing when you think about it. The idea that you can be a Fortune 50 company, do a hundred billion dollars a year and only have three or 4% market share. There's no industry like it in the world. So I think we could be growing for a very long time inside of the world of insurance before we bump into any ceilings that would just force us to expand into other sectors. So never say never, but on the other hand, no great sense of urgency in that direction. Well, it's interesting too, because as you look at your industry, you benefit, as many of the fintech firms do in the banking industry, from the fact that trying to change legacy banking to become competitive in a digital world is very close to impossible. The banks feel really good about the fact that during COVID-19, they were able to transform their business to be able to serve a customer on a digital basis. But as you said, that's only the last mile um, that really doesn't get to the underpinnings of how important it is to be a digital organization. We look at uh, the difference between a BBVA and a lot of the other banking organizations and, and the real difference between a BBVA, who's very innovative and very progressive and very digital, is that they've had a technologist or a, an engineer at the helm for more than a decade. It helps when you don't have bankers get in their own way in much the same way that it helps when you don't get insurance agents getting in their own way or you don't have uh, brokers for investment services get in their own way. And we've probably seen as much transformation in the broker industry as anything else. But it's been great talking to you, Daniel. And, and I just have to say that uh, I have a lot of admiration for not only what Lemonade has done, but the way they've done it. I think you've shown that um, you can completely disrupt an industry if you look at the consumer first. The data and the AI part of it, becomes a lot easier than having to hire a bunch of brokers. But if you have the focus first, if the center of the organization is truly on people before profits, it's a successful model for the future. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Wow. You know, there's interviews that really uh, enlighten you. And, and this was one. If nothing else, if you're a banker, you should look at this and say, how in the world do we transform our bank or our financial institution into being not only more digital, but a lot more focused on the consumer? We're challenged daily by the fact that we have legacy thinking, legacy processes, legacy procedures, and we, on an ongoing basis, kind of try to fake that we're digital. But more importantly than being digital, Lemonade shows us the power of putting people before profits, but not forgetting the profit side. In addition, as opposed to using AI and advanced learning data, 
just for reducing risk as insurance agencies or insurance companies tend to do. They're using it to improve the customer experience for the immediacy of payments. A lot to be learned from a company like Lemonade. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raised the top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my most recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.